it isn't often that somebody has the opportunity that I have today. Um, I am looking back over generations. When I came to Sequoia Hills, I was 12 years old. Uh, the church was um, getting ready to celebrate its fifth anniversary. A year after that, my dad was on the pulpit committee that called Dr. J.C. Bunn as our pastor. And um, since that time, I'm, I am now standing here looking at what God has done through generations. And what a joy that is to be able to share with you today. Uh, it is a pleasure to introduce to most of you, or many of you, Joshua Winfrey. He is the son of Ken and Karen Winfrey and the grandson of our former pastor, Dr. J.C. Bunn, and his wife, Helen. He spent his first day at Sequoia Hills Baptist Church at the age of two weeks on April the 29th, 1979. And he has remained here through his teenage years. He, was, he accepted Christ and was baptized in this church. In 1997, he went to Penn State University. He was commissioned in the U.S. Marine Corps in August of 2001 and stationed in Jacksonville, North Carolina, where he met his beautiful wife, Eileen. They were married in 2003. His last post was Marine Instructor for OU's ROTC. Presently, Eileen is a school librarian in Norman, and they have two daughters, Abby and Charlotte. Joshua is continuing his studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is a personal coach and fitness trainer. And today comes to fill our pulpit. It is an emotional time for me, I can tell you, um, to have seen and watched um, this family and had such personal contact with them for so many years. So Joshua, we welcome you and your family today. May God bless you. All right. Well, thank you. Beverly, uh, good morning to you all. Uh, it is uh, an emotional, <laughs> it's a bit of an emotional uh, time for me too, uh, but it is uh, an incredible privilege uh, to be here with you all uh, today. Um, I'm humbled, uh, and uh, it is it is a tad surreal, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, to be uh, to have this opportunity. But I praise God for it, and I thank you all for having me. Let's uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this time of worship and fellowship together. We thank you for the immeasurable blessing of your very presence here with us. We ask that your spirit will guide us as we open up your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you have for us today. And that we would leave here changed 
more conformed to the image of your son. It's in his name and for your glory that we pray. Amen. So when John and Beverly extended the uh, invitation uh, several months ago, uh, and they mentioned that it would be on Father's Day, uh, one particular topic jumped almost immediately uh, to the forefront of my mind. Uh, In this place where, uh, as Beverly uh, just mentioned, I spent so many years of my childhood. My faith journey began here. I was baptized here. My mom and her siblings grew up here. My parents were married here and where my grandparents had such a profound impact in ministry for so many years. On this occasion, in this place, uh, the topic of legacy seemed to me to be pretty obvious. Um, And in particular, the vital importance, vital importance, especially right now, especially right now in the age and the culture that we live in, the vital importance of building and carrying on a biblical legacy. And as I thought, as I began to think and pray about how to approach uh, that topic, my mind certainly went to my own spiritual heritage uh, and just how richly blessed I have been uh, to be born into and raised by uh, such godly parents. Um, I, thought of my, I thought of my grandparents on both sides, on both sides, and the strong Christ-like example uh, that I saw in each one of them. And of course, my, my thought went to uh, my granddad uh, in particular, who pastored this congregation for so many years and preached so many sermons uh, in this very room. And I wondered how he would approach the topic, uh, what he would say. And I thought of stories uh, from his life uh, that, uh, that demonstrated a biblical legacy uh, in the life uh, that he lived. And as I, as I began to put pen to paper, thinking about a couple of those stories, a thought occurred to me, and I could, al- I could almost hear this in his voice. Joshua, don't you dare get up in front of those people and brag about me. <laughs> don't you dare do that. Just stick to the gospel. That's enough. That's enough. And as, as I kind of pondered that and reflected on that a little bit, something, something else dawned on me. You know, he... He didn't really care what you thought about him. <laughs> you know, for, for, be- for better or worse, he, he really didn't give much thought to your opinion of him, whether you liked him. But you know what he did care very much about? He very much cared about what you thought of Jesus. And his life reflected that as his highest priority. It was Jesus' legacy that mattered to him, not J.C. Bunn's legacy. And that really is the challenge, the fundamental challenge that I want to leave with us today. As Christians, we are not called to build our own legacy. 
we're called to carry on the legacy of Jesus Christ. Right? And you know, we're, we're, all, it, we're all building a legacy and leaving a legacy of, of some kind. Right? Believe, it, believe it or not, even, even those of you who think you may not have a whole lot of influence, we are all building and leaving some kind of legacy, good or bad, for better or worse. We are all having an influence, and we are all building some sort of legacy. So I would say that this is not just a word for fathers, though it is very much applicable to those of us who fill that role. We all are influencing in some way the people uh, around us. And the common question we hear all the time in our culture, what will your legacy be? What is it uh, that your legacy will be? And, and there, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that question. I, I think it's a, it's a fine question to consider, but I, I do think it misses something critical. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we need to to be thinking about the question in a little bit different way. It's not so much a matter of what legacy you're building, but whose legacy are you building? Whose legacy are you building? Are you busy trying to create your own legacy? Maybe you're concerned about your family's legacy and carrying on your family name. Or maybe it's a business or a company uh, whose legacy you're trying to build? Whose legacy are you building? And if you call yourself a Christian, I would submit to you that there's one and only one legacy that really matters. One and only one legacy that we ought to be concerned with leaving our family, leaving our children, leaving our friends. We ought not be concerned about building our own legacy, but about carrying on the legacy of Jesus Christ. And if you want to get a deeply practical sense of what that legacy looks like, you don't need to look any further than the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount a beautiful picture of the authentic spiritual life and how that life should impact the world and carry on his legacy. And we don't have nearly enough time to look at the details of all of it. I wish we did. But I think there are some key insights on this topic that Jesus gives us in his conclusion to the sermon at the end of Matthew chapter 7. So if you, do, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them and join me in looking at Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. I'm going to be reading through from the uh, English Standard Version uh, as I read this. So Matthew 7, starting with verse 24, read along with me as I read aloud. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, 
and not as their scribes. So in looking at these few verses, I want us to see three principles which Jesus himself exemplified that I think are foundational to carrying on his legacy. And they are reverence, devotion, and obedience. Reverence, devotion, and obedience. And I want to explore each of these uh, in a little bit of detail. So starting with the principle of reverence. We actually see this at the end of the verses in verses 28 and 29. And we can see this in how Matthew describes the people's reaction and response after Jesus finishes his teaching. First, they recognize that he has authority. See that in verse 29, for he taught with real authority, not like their teachers of the law. So there was a recognition that what this man was saying was quite unlike what they had heard before. In this sermon, Jesus was not simply reciting a teaching from the scriptures as the people were accustomed to hearing from the scribes. Jesus goes well beyond this, giving practical implications of a new ethos, a new interpretation of the law than they had heard from their teachers before. He demanded of them a fundamental orientation of the heart, which manifested action that showed love of God and love toward their, fe- their fellow man to a far greater degree than anything that they had been taught before by the scribes and the Pharisees. He preached with an authority that was different, and they recognized it. And this caused them, we see in verse 28, to be astonished. I love this word. The word in the original language here literally means to be filled with an amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. They marveled at this man, Jesus, and were struck with awe at the authority of his message. This is reverence. This is reverence. It is, in short, a response of worship that stems from a proper recognition of God's authority. A prerequisite for the hearing and the doing which Jesus describes at the beginning of these verses, which we'll shortly discuss, is a heart of reverence, a heart which fears God, a heart which worships God. And when I use that term worship, I'm not just talking about singing a few hymns on a Sunday morning, right? I'm talking about a heart that sees God for who he is and responds in humility. Humility comes from a rightful recognition of who I am in relation to who God is. I love the way that MacArthur talks about worship, worship resulting from humility. He says, worship is all that we are responding rightly to all that God is. All that we are responding rightly to all that God is. And that goes well beyond what happens on a Sunday morning, doesn't it? It goes well beyond me volunteering in children's ministry. It goes well beyond me singing a couple of songs on a Sunday morning. It goes well beyond even me leading 
about a small group Bible study. It is a fundamental orientation of the heart that actively chooses to seek out and find and honor God in all things. Everything I see, everything I encounter, everything that I do, every job, every relationship, every task, it's all his. It's all his. From the mundane to the monumental, it's all his. Right? And I, I think we get ourselves in trouble sometimes. We, ha- we have this tendency to, distinct, to make this distinction between the secular and the sacred. Right? These are the things, this, this place in particular, this place right here is where I'll take my shoes off because it's holy ground. This stuff over here, this is the world. This is, I, I have to go over here, I have to do these things. This is not God's. This is God's over here. And it's, to be honest with you, I, I think this is something that our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox Church get right. That we, with our Puritan roots, sometimes get wrong. Friends, there is no distinction between sacred and secular. It's all God's. Okay? And we need, we need to find the beauty and the awe and the mystery and the wonder of God in those seemingly small, secular things. I love the way that Brendan Manning puts this in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. It's one of my favorite books. He says, we get so preoccupied with ourselves and the words that we speak and the plans and projects that we conceive that we become immune to the glory of God in the world around us. We barely notice the cloud passing over the moon or the dewdrops clinging to the rose petals. The ice on the pond comes and goes. The wild blackberries ripen and wither the blackbird nests outside our bedroom window and we don't even see her. We rake up every leaf as fast as it falls. We grow complacent and lead all too practical lives and we miss the experience of awe and reverence and wonder in the world around us. He continues, he says, our world is saturated with grace and we miss it because we get too busy. And he says, the lurking presence of God, I love that term, the lurking presence of God is revealed not just in spirit, but in matter, in the world around us. God intended for us to discover his loving presence in everything in the world around us. See, Jesus did not make that distinction between secular and sacred. There was no distinction like that with him. The whole of his life was directed to giving glory and honor to the Father. His heart was fundamentally oriented to worship, to pursuing the Father's glory and making much of him no matter where he went, no matter where it took him, no matter who he talked to, no matter how he ministered. It was all seeking after God's glory because his heart was properly oriented fundamentally to the, to the authority of the Father. And he lived that out in every aspect of his life. His was a legacy of reverence. So my question to you is, are you looking for God's glory in the little things? Are you looking for that lurking presence of God in all of the seemingly mundane things of everyday life? 
Are you awed by the wonder and mystery of God in the everyday things that you do? In the same way that people recognized Jesus' authority and responded to his teaching with awe, so we must also respond to his authority and pursue his glory in all things if we are to carry on the legacy of reverence and worship that he has left for us. The second principle that we find in these verses is the principle of devotion. In addressing the audience, Jesus says in verses 24 and 26, everyone who hears these words of mine. For the disciples and the crowds that were present with him, they heard him speaking directly, physically, hearing his voice directly, the commands and the teachings in the message that he brought that day, and they were compelled to respond. For, for us today, we have to attune our ears to hear in a little bit different way. Right? Paul tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing. Where does he say hearing comes from? The Word of God. That's right. That's right. See, this is the legacy of devotion. For the key to hearing the voice of God in my life is rooted in cultivating the interior devotional life. Just as I must respond in faith to the call of the gospel, so I must continue to abide in faith for the effect of the gospel, my salvation, to be fully worked out. And that means that to hear the voice of God in my life requires that I continually discipline myself in devotion to times of prayer and meditation and the thoughtful study of God's word. Prayer is essential, essential for attuning our ears to hear. As Kent Hughes says, it shapes our character as we continually expose ourselves to the presence of God through continual conversation with him. And if we remain steadfast in pursuing God's will in prayer, the effect is that it will ultimately bend our will to his. I love the way that E. Stanley Jones puts this. He says, if I throw a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me? Or do I pull my boat to the shore? Right? And that's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not pulling, my, pulling God to my will, but aligning my will with the will of God. Likewise, likewise, the continual study of God's word, reading and reciting the scriptures, singing psalms and hymns, and meditating on the instructions and the promises and the stories of God's work fortifies our hearts and shapes and renews our mind to hear and understand the heart and the will of God for our life. When Paul speaks of being transformed by the renewing of our mind in Romans 12, he is calling us to saturate our minds with the things of God. You see, God did not preserve his word in the scriptures that we might read it for informational purposes. Right? Its purpose is transformational, not informational. 
It is meant to be heard. It is meant to be heard. It is meant to be the vessel through which he speaks to us so that we might hear and understand his will for our lives. I must immerse myself in its message, in its teaching, and meditate on it day and night, as the psalmist says. That word for meditate, not coincidentally in Psalm 1, literally means to mutter. I am to mutter on the word day and night. The psalmist says that the word of God is literally to be my continual chatter. For that to be the case, I have to memorize it. I have to internalize it. And as I meditate on it, repeatedly meditating on its truth, the Holy Spirit will open my ears to hear God speak. One of the greatest gifts that my parents have given me is an understanding of the importance of the devotional life. I have vivid memories from my childhood of regularly seeing my dad poring over the scriptures in intense study and prayer. I have vivid memories of both my parents regularly praying together with me and my sister. Teaching me through their example, it has instilled in me the lesson of the indispensable importance of cultivating the interior devotional life. And this is the standard that Jesus himself set. He exemplified this. He embodied a life of devotion. He himself, of course, was the word made flesh, John tells us. But the gospel, we read repeatedly in the gospel accounts of him going off by himself to pray, of praying all night, of secluding himself to be alone with the Father. Growing up in a devoted Jewish household, we know that he was exposed repeatedly to the teaching and the reciting of the Scriptures, the repetition of the Scriptures. And we see in the only account we have from his youth in Luke's Gospel that he was in the temple, <laughs> Engage, actively engaging and listening to the teachers and engaging them with questions. His life was one of a continual pursuit of the heart of the Father through prayer and meditation. His legacy was one not only of reverence and worship, but one of steadfast devotion. Are you cultivating that kind of connectedness to God? This is something I struggle with. I'm going to be totally honest. Life gets busy, right? I mean, so I got a hard enough time doing all the things that I need to do with my physical hands, right, through the day, let alone stealing off for some time uh, to be with God. But it is vital. It is vital. It is vital. absolutely essential if we're to live the life that he's called us to. In the busyness of life, in the busyness of life, how often do you stop and spend time in prayer listening for what God might say? If we're to continue to carry on the legacy of Jesus, we must continually attune our ears to hear his voice through the discipline of devotion. To reverence and devotion... Critical principles. Critical principles. 
But unless they come together to culminate in obedience, they do not fulfill the legacy that Jesus has left for us. Obedience is the third principle that we see in these verses. And what we see Jesus say is that it is the primary distinctive of the legacy that he has called us to continue. You see, ultimately, Jesus did not leave a legacy of religious ideas. Right? He did not leave a legacy of philosophizing or moralism. His legacy is one of action. It is one of doing, of work, of putting into practice the words that he preached. His legacy put the heart of God into action. It was righteous motive manifested in works of righteousness. This is the fundamental message of the Sermon on the Mount which is why he concludes it in the way that he does. See the distinction that he makes here between wisdom and folly. The wise man is one who hears and does what he says. The foolish man hears and does not. They both hear. They both hear the words. The distinction between the two is a matter of obedience. And the illustration that Jesus gives is very revealing as to the gravity of the consequences inherent in this distinction. The wise person living in the Palestinian desert would erect a dwelling, a tent of some kind, on a secure rock to protect the house from the flash floods that sudden storms would create. The foolish person, on the other hand, would build directly on the sand. And his house and his goods and his family would have no protection against the devastation of the elements. So what's the rock here? What's the rock that he is talking about? What is Jesus saying is the solid foundation? Is it, is it me saying that I believe? Is that the solid foundation? Is it my claim to faith that is the rock? No, it is Jesus' words in action that is the rock. It is persistent obedience to what Jesus has called us to. That is the rock. And we would do well, I think, to remember this in light of the vision that Jesus is casting on the Sermon on the Mount. He is connecting the temporal with the eternal. He is inaugurating the kingdom. And he is inviting us through faith to reorient our values, our vision, and our habits from the ways of external hand ritual righteousness to a wholeheartedness toward God. He is inviting us into life in his kingdom, both now and in the future age. And he thus speaks of consequences, both now and in eternity. As the wise man perseveres in obedience, his faith is bolstered to withstand the storms and the trials and the craziness that comes with this life and find victory both in this life and in the life to come. The foolish man, the one who does not live out the direction that he has given, will in a word find destruction. 
That is a harsh word. That's a harsh word. But friends, that is the reality of what Jesus is teaching in this message. This is how strong the emphasis is that he is placing on the gravity of obedience. Friends, if I call myself a Christian, I am obligated to more than simply saying I believe. I am obligated to follow in the steps of Jesus by doing what he says. My Christianity does not simply entitle me to have righteousness because of what Jesus has accomplished. My Christianity obligates me to do righteousness precisely because of all that Jesus has done for me. And if I do not obey, Jesus' point in these verses is that there are grave consequences. If I am not living according to his teaching, I am not building a foundation that will, stand, that will withstand the storm, and I am on a path to destruction, both in this life and in eternity. R.T. France says this. He says, The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus, are not meant to be admired. They're meant to be obeyed. Friends, we ignore that to our own peril. And this, of course, is the standard that Jesus himself exemplified. He built a solid foundation of consistent, persistent obedience to the Father through his life and ministry. This is the message throughout John's gospel. And it is this foundation of continuous submission and obedience to the Father's will which steadied him when the flood began to rise and the ultimate test came. I had uh, the awesome privilege of being able to visit Israel uh, in March of this year. And of all the amazing things that I saw on that 10-day trip, one of the most impactful moments for me was our stop in Gethsemane. And my mind went to that moment when his test came. That night leading up to uh, his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. And standing there amidst olive trees that are 2,000 years old. Right? You can see there is a clear line of sight from the garden to the Temple Mount. There is a clear line of sight to the Antonia Fort where the Antonia Fortress stood, where he would be tried and scourged and beaten. There is a clear line of sight from the garden down the Kidron Valley where the mob would be approaching to seize him and arrest him. He could see the events unfolding, both in his mind's eye and in the physical unfolding of it. He could see it. He could see it all happening, and he begged the Father. It brought him to his knees, Matthew's Gospel says. He begged the Father for another way. Let this cup pass. All things are possible with you. Let this cup pass. Let there be another way. 
Yet what did he resolve? Not my will, but your will. Friends, he took the step of obedience when everything in him wanted to say no. And he became our eternal salvation, praise God. He, but he was equipped, he was equipped to survive that flood of torment, not because he was God in the flesh, but because he had cultivated his entire life, he had cultivated a persistent, consistent obedience to the Father's will. That is what steadied him in that flood. That was the foundation that he stood on. Jesus taught in these verses that wisdom is distinguished from foolishness to the degree that we follow him in obedience, and he lived that to its, to its fullest. His is not a legacy of religious ideas. It is a legacy of absolute submission and humble obedience to the will of God, no matter the cost. That is the legacy that he has left us. Are, are you continuing that legacy? Are you building that kind of foundation? Is the life that you're leading inspiring your kids to want to carry on that legacy? If the legacy that we leave is the life that we live, what does your life say? Whose legacy are you building? Friends, leaving a legacy involves far more than handing down a monetary inheritance or passing on a good family name. It's not just about making the world a better place. Right? We must be concerned here and now with a lasting legacy. One that transcends material wealth and social institution and human structures. One that continues for eternity. A biblical legacy carries on the legacy of Christ. And that legacy is one of reverence and worship, one of steadfast devotion, and one of uncompromising obedience. That is our calling today. May God, in His grace, grant us strength and courage. May the Spirit of Christ Himself empower each of us to live a life that carries on His legacy. Amen? Amen.